Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 4th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and our very own Katie Jo Murfin. Right, uh, we'll get kicked off with uh, some economic news then. And uh, well, and a bit more actually, because let's have a look at this. The Mail Online this morning saying, fuel protesters block the M4 and target motorways across the UK with threat of 12 hours of traffic jams as one films his 30 mile an hour rolling blockade while fed up drivers abandon cars and play football on carriageway. So the question is, are we going to see more civil unrest uh, over this uh, summer uh, in the UK and in other countries as well? Uh, as a result of the uh, cost of uh, living, so-called cost of living crisis and the, the rise in inflation and so on, which of course is being blamed on Vladimir Putin. So uh, anyway, that's the headline in the mail. Uh, why would uh, they be choosing this type of uh, of protest? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I would have thought that being camped outside uh, the Houses of Parliament might be a better option. But anyway, uh, perhaps the headlines are quite similar to the ones we saw in the run-up to uh, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, while it was still a bill, it's now an act, of course. Uh, and, uh, well, if there's going to be any civil unrest this uh, summer, uh, this bill or this act uh, will put paid to some of the protests that's going on, but not all, because the government feels that what they already have, which is pretty draconian under this Act of Parliament, uh, is not sufficient. So they've decided uh, to push through with the uh, Public Order Bill, uh, which is about to make, uh, make provision for uh, new offences related to public order. Uh, and uh, so they're attempting to further criminalise people for uh, getting on the streets. Um, and uh, they will create a new offence of locking on. They'll create new offences of interfering with key national infrastructure. They'll create, uh, uh, they'll expand stop and search. Uh, and they'll protest banning, uh, they'll create protest banning orders. This adds to what happened under the Police Crime Courts and Sentencing Act. Um, so... Well, let's uh, remind ourselves, of course, what's going on in Germany at the moment. Uh, we mentioned this on Friday, uh, this report from the Bavarian Industry Association saying that, uh, that there are consequences for German industry if there's an interruption to the supply of Russian gas. Uh, and that would be a fall of 12.7% in e economic output. Well, here's uh, another report. Uh, from another think tank. This is the Center for Economics and Business Research. Uh, and they're saying that the recession could be as much as uh, 40% in Germany uh, and in Europe, in fact, if Putin turns off the gas. Now, they're saying that uh, Gazprom has already cut exports uh, by around 60% uh, out of Russia and into the Europe. Uh, and then there'd be planned maintenance uh, of the uh, various pipelines this month, at the end of this month, which is likely to see, or at least they're suggesting that, that Putin will take advantage of that to shut gas supplies down for Europe completely. And so they're saying Putin seems intent on forcing the hand of European states, convinced that stopping gas exports will hurt Western countries more than it will cost Russia. Uh, and this would uh, could lead governments in Europe to shut down industrial uh, plants and so on. And they estimate the risk of a recession uh, 40%. And therefore, uh, the UK uh, well, they're saying that because the UK is using a smaller proportion of its gas from Russia, that uh, there would be some insulation against that. Well, I don't think so. But anyway, let's move quickly on, uh, because, of course, the risk of civil unrest in France, of course, is quite high. They've, they've already had some over the past couple of years with the yellow vests and so on. Macron has just suffered very significantly in the recent elections. Uh, and so he's now decided that the best person that he can put in charge 
to sell government policy to the French people is the man who ran France's COVID policy. Uh, this is the type of thinking of uh, Mr. Macron. He thinks this is going to be a success. Uh, so this is uh, Olivier Veran, uh, who was the health minister, and he is now going to become the uh, person to sell French government policy to the people. How do you think that's going to go? Not well, Mike, no. is my impression, but no. Macron's uh, in trouble, so hopefully this is going to give him some more trouble. Uh, but uh, let's see what uh, is going on on the other side of the Atlantic. And here's Bloomberg. The US economy is headed for a hard landing. And David, I'm going to ask for your comments very briefly on this, because there's one quote from this article that really had me in stitches, and that is this. Uh, much like a wily e. coyote heading off a cliff, the US economy has plenty of momentum, but rapidly disappearing support, uh, falling back to earth will not be a pleasant experience. I thought that was probably the quote of the year so far. Yes, that was that was rather beautiful. It, it, it gives you a picture of exactly where we are. Um, that there is no support. There's nothing there's nothing real left in there. Um, and well, perhaps it, in extra time, we can explore this in, 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 in depth. But the US economy has many, many problems, inflation being just one. Uh, and just uh, so that everybody knows, the person that wrote that uh, article and therefore that quote uh, was Bill Dudley, who's the former uh, president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. So uh, that's his opinion. Um, and then finally, in this little segment, uh, I just want to bring on uh, Biden's current uh, chief economic advisor. He was formerly Obama's uh, economic advisor as well. Uh, and before that, global head of sustainable invest investment at BlackRock. Um, and uh, well, he had some comments about what the, or at least about how the uh, US population should be uh, dealing with inflation and uh, cost of living and so on. So they say that this could be a long a war measured in years. And I think everybody understands why this is happening, but is it sustainable? What do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay 485 a gallon for months, if not years, this is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. So, uh, David, the last time I heard of, uh, you know, uh, the establishment taking that attitude uh, a couple of hundred years ago, they started getting their heads chopped off fairly quickly afterwards. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about let them eat cake and so on. This kind of seems to be the same attitude here. It's bizarre, though. We have we're protecting the liberal world order by paying exorbitant prices at the gas tanks um, and, and not travelling anymore. It's, it's almost wartime uh, sort of rhetoric, isn't it? I mean, world war rhetoric. You know, we're, we're all in this together. We must sacrifice. We must sacrifice our, our interests, our personal interests, our family's interests, our individual success to the greater good for the great war against Putin. This seems to be what he's saying. Indeed. I think it's absolutely what he's saying. But the fasc fascinating thing is that the BBC seems to be unsure as to whether the Great War's on or not. Uh, as we've been reporting for some weeks now, have a look at the BBC's front page. Can you see Ukraine? Well, it's difficult to see, but it, it is here. Uh, Ukraine confirms Lizzie Chant's ca capture by the Russians. Tiny little headline pushed away in the corner. But the reality is that, of course, this is a major strategic defeat for the Ukrainians uh, because the Russians are going to move on to the next weaker line of defence before they're clearly 
uh, able to move into the uh, western part of the Donbass. Now, if, if people want to see more detail, there's very good analysis online. We've been trying to direct people to a variety of reports. This is the Military Summary Channel. And uh, if you want the key area that uh, is the key part of the battle at the moment, several Donetsk and Lizzie Chance, it's over in this eastern area circled. Uh, you can also go to Defence Politics uh, Asia. Um, and I've chosen this particular one just because of this very easy to see uh, view in the circle where the Russians surrounded Lizzie Chance. And the city was gone. The city was gone for days before the BBC would even recognise that there was only one outcome. And remarkably, the BBC was also now um, referring to online reports as to what's happening. So the BBC, with a budget of just under £6 billion, can't report what's happening in the war, but they're referring to online reporters. Uh, this is really the state of the BBC. Apparently, the Ukrainians are so good that they're running lessons from the trenches while the battle goes on. Perhaps this is the reason that the battle is, is uh, being lost. But this is fantasy reporting by the BBC. Meanwhile, they can just about manage a report on Lizzie Chance. The city's gone. This is major industrial heartland of Ukraine. But according to the BBC, we've now got to wait and see how the Ukrainians are going to win, because uh, the BBC is pretty sure. But let me take you into a different area. And uh, I'm going to say grateful for some help from our audience as to what's going on here. I've been following through the stories about captured Britons. And of course, these are all essentially aid workers as far as the BBC is concerned. Um, but I started to delve in a little bit deeper. Let's have a look at what uh, we found. So here's the report. According to a report by Russia's TASS news agency, an anonymous official from the self-styled Donetsk Public People's Republic claimed Mr. Healy and Mr. Hill, the latest uh, Britons, would st stand trial for mercenary activities. And it says here that Mr. Healy's capture earlier this week was publicised by an aid organisation working in the area, Presidium Network, which said he and another Briton, Paul Urey, had been carrying out humanitarian work independently near Zaporozhnia. So um, this was very interesting because what is this network? Well, before we get there, let's just look at a map again. And uh, this is the area they're talking about. And apparently uh, uh, this gentleman went from Ukrainian territory talked his way past the front line into the Russian sector and was then captured, but he was on an aid mission. Right. Uh, so let's have a look at uh, Presidium. And this is the man quoted by the BBC, uh, Dominic Byrne. He says we're in regular contact with the Healy family uh, who were very scared and wanted their son home as soon as possible. The family have been in contact with the British government, the Red Cross, which was trying to get access to Mr. Healy to check on his welfare. It is a horrible situation with the two men who were likely being interrogated constantly and kept in awful conditions. I'll just interject there and say that all of the reports that we're seeing online, uh, including where Azov men have spoken to camera, it's clear that they're being held in remarkably good conditions. But nevertheless, uh, Mr. Healy had no connection with the Ukrainian military or any foreign legions and was in the country as a volunteer. 
So this is all from this gentleman, Dominic Byrne from Presidium Network that the BBC talks about but doesn't introduce. Um, well, this is a report from Dominic Byrne back in April uh, this year, and he was reporting on this uh, situation. He said, Mr. Yuri, who's from Warrington, Cheshire, previously spent eight years as a civilian contractor in Afghanistan. He'd been living in Leyland, Lancashire prior to traveling to Ukraine. What I'd like to draw our, our viewers and listeners' attention to is the mention of Afghanistan while we're uh, into a Ukrainian article. But let's uh, get into Presidium Network. Here they are. It's helping those going through a humanitarian crisis. It's a non-profit CIC operating tirelessly behind the scenes, uh, set up to help deal with complex challenges during Afghanistan. So this is an interesting uh, thing. They are moving around the trouble spots. And uh, down at the bottom, it says the Presidium Network want to discourage those who plan on using the crisis in Ukraine to their advantage and keep the lines of communication and compassion open to all. Remember that phrase about using Ukraine for an advantage. Well, here's Dominic Byrne. This is his LinkedIn page. And he quickly announces that at Trillion, we arrange impact investment and EPCs for renewable energy and civilian infrastructure in emerging markets. Well, could we believe that this man is looking for an emerging market in Ukraine? Is that possible? Maybe. It's difficult to tell. Uh, but back to Presidium. And uh, these are the professionals that are involved. We've got a gentleman called Scott Richards, the founder of the Joint Task Force for Anti and Counter Corruption. Here's Dominic Byrne. He's involved with Fundsurfer and Trillion. And a colleague, Oliver uh, Machizuki, CEO of Fundsurfer and Trillion impact. Well, who are they? Uh, well, here's Fundsurfer. If you need funding, they're the place to go to. And if you do go to this website, you can see the report about funding Ukraine, emergency aid and supplies, uh, Ukrainian humanitarian support. So this all looks okay, doesn't it? Uh, here's Trillion. Uh, this is Fundsurfer's impact investment arm dedicated to energy, housing, and civilian infrastructure projects in emerging markets. So is Ukraine an emerging market? Good question. It's a good question, isn't it? And uh, here is the Joint Humanitarian Operations Center working with Presidium Network. Smart SBC, a Swedish organization, they've deployed in Afghanistan, Ukraine, and Africa. Osprey's Global, a US organization apparently specializing in medical supplies, shoulder to shoulder based in the UK. Yes. Uh, sorry, in the US, a charity that supports evacuations from crisis points. So let's have a look at these in more detail. Here's SBC. Um, so it says that uh, its officers came together from various international business, media, technology, financial, and international legal backgrounds with a common goal to support emerging markets and technology, as well as helping to rebuild regions suffering from significant infrastructure damage or deficiency caused by conflict. Is that war profiteering? Well, um, uh, keep out. Uh, Presidium says keep out because um, you don't want to be using Ukraine for the wrong reasons. And yet these people appear to be lining up in order to get involved in the rebuilding action. Mm. So let's follow it through. 
Uh, we had a look at their team. I just chose one lady. Her picture jumped out at me. So who's Leah here, Leah Tedrow? Uh, well, we'll bring in a bit of a CV. We'll make it easy for the audience because we'll summarize. She's led over 750 million US dollars in strategic communications and social change campaigns. Ah. As a business executive and longtime media and contracts liaison officer, to US and NATO military commands. So what's this got to do with civilians or civil society or, uh, yes? We'll come back to that question, Mike. Let's go to the next one. Here's Osprey, which is part of the Joint Humanitarian Operations Center team. Um, lead, inspire, serve. The one on the left looks remarkably like a picture of a mercenary to me, Mike, oh, but indeed. maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe that's an aid worker. Uh, vision uh, to pursue the perpetual advantage of our partners through excellence in leadership that inspires innovative solutions to complex tasks. The mission delivers global full spectrum medical construction, security training, armament services. So this is clearly all about uh, aid and humanitarian stuff. Uh, here's the capabilities. This one caught my eye, support clinical trials and laboratory operations in remote areas. And of course, uh, there were no laboratories in Ukraine at any point. Well, I believe there were, yes. Mike, actually. So that was a surprising one. Let's uh, just move on down here and see this one. Develop relationships with local physicians and governments to provide sustained care and set up, quote, clinical trials in emerging markets. Uh, David, if I could just interject here, um, there's a bit of a pattern emerging. We've moved a long way from a couple of guys involved in humanitarian aid. We certainly have. Um, this um, 750, uh, the chairman of um, Smart SBC Group, 750 million in strategic communications and social change campaigns, that's propaganda. You've got to be quite high up to be given 750 million for your propaganda campaign. I mean, that's that's got to be um, sort of White House level, surely. Uh, so this is very interesting that that sort of person is running people who are cropping up in odd places in uh, Ukrainian backwoods. Well, certainly if I was on the Russian side, I would be asking a lot of questions of these gentlemen and who they were involved with. But let's finish the trio of uh, this humanitarian initiative because this is uh, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, we better flag it up. They're part of the Joint Humanitarian Operations Center. Apparently it's veterans serving veterans. Uh, but when we get into it, it's dedicated to providing innovative IT, multimedia training and organizational improvement solutions that enhance individual well-being and organizational performance. We're proud to be supporting multi-federal agencies, including the Department of Defense, that's the American Department of Defense, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, this is one of the two key men from that organization. And if you read through um, his, uh, his career, his career as a, a reservist with the US Navy, but he's heavily into major, major projects with the American government. So I'm going to finish uh, this little segment by coming back to show the gentleman on screen. So uh, we're back to these Britons who've been captured by the Russians. 
the Russians are clearly going to ask them a lot of questions. But what were these men? Were they genuine aid workers? Were they mercenaries? Were they a combination of a mercenary aid worker? Or have they been duped and they're puppets of what appears to be powerful agencies working behind the scenes for even more powerful political and financial masters? I think we need to ask a lot of questions about Presidium, that the BBC drifts in as though butter wouldn't melt in their mouth as an aid agency, because I think the UK column analysis tends to suggest that um, they're possibly far from simple aid agencies. These are the scouts lining up the huge infrastructure rebuild projects. Um, so I wonder if any of those people are involved in this conference, which is starting today and concluding tomorrow, the Ukraine Recovery Conference. Now, this used to be known as the Ukraine Reform Conference. It was an annual high-level political event. Uh, and uh, over the four previous years that it has been held uh, in the UK, Canada, Denmark and Lithuania, uh, it was all about uh, allowing Ukraine to highlight its reforms, progress and discuss next reform priorities. But it's been changed now because of the war. Uh, apparently, to uh, the UK Ukraine Recovery uh, Progr- uh, Conference. And uh, one of the slogans that they're very keen to promote is Build Back Better, uh, which is hardly surprising. But anyway, uh, aside from the likes of Ursula von der Leyen and so on, uh, who will be there? Well, none other than, oh, sorry, none other than the wonderful uh, Liz Trust there. Uh, so she is uh, heading over there. This particular piece of video wasn't related to it, but I just uh, she was tweeting this out this morning. I thought I would just show it while we're talking about this. Um, and she's going to be uh, addressing the Ukraine Recovery Conference, uh, talking about humanitarian assistance and demining programs, how they're going to help rebuild villages, towns and cities. And in the long t- longer term, the UK will share economic and financial expertise to transform Ukraine into a global hub for investment, enterprise and cutting edge technology. Uh, so that all seems to fit with what you've just been talking about, Brian. And we're also going to champion the recovery of the city of Kiev and the Kiev region on the request of President Zelensky. And Zelensky was speaking to this uh, conference uh, this morning. Uh, and she's going to also announce plans to work with the government of Ukraine and allies to host the Ukraine Recovery Conference in 2023. So there's going to be another one next year. Uh, so anyway, that's the delightful Liz. Uh, now, of course, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine's economy is not doing too well at the moment, as you would imagine. Uh, and uh, Brian, you pushed this, or I think this came from David originally, this tweet here. Uh, showing how the Ukraine is uh, currently uh, in pretty extreme situation with respect to, to government spending and whatnot. Uh, but uh, what is actually being offered by the UK here? Well, we just keep that on on screen and imagine how what I'm about to read out uh, will make this situation better. So they're talking about $950 million of World Bank lending and $121 million of fiscal support grants through the World Bank Multi-Donor Trust Fund and National Bank of Ukraine. Uh, then a, a third guarantee of up to $525 million uh, or £429 million of new World Bank lending in Ukraine. £10 million to the Energy Support Fund to support the government of Ukraine with essential repairs to energy infrastructure. Uh, a guarantee of £41 million of European Bank for Reconstruction and Development lending uh, for energy transmission operator, uh, you, uh, uh, the main energy transmission operator, uh, and uh, life-saving assistance and demining operations that we talked about and so on. Uh, but what we've got here uh, is basically 
more loans on top of a massive debt problem that Ukraine already has. So how is this going to help? Uh, well, it's going to help the West. It's going to help the US, UK, EU, NATO by the fact that Ukraine is going to be a wreck of its former self, but what's left is going to be totally owned by the banking cabal. Yes, so, yes. So Ukraine will cease to exist as a functioning nation state. Um, so then the question uh, was on, on Friday, we were talking about uh, uh, Jens Stoltenberg's claims of 300,000 people, uh, troops uh, in uh, along the Eastern Front uh, in order to uh, keep the pressure on uh, Russia. And the question is, where are these people going to come from? So let's have a look at what the situation is in the United States, for example, and this ABC News article, uh, military struggling to find new troops as fewer young Americans willing or able to serve. Now, when they mean able, they mean that they're too fat uh, to serve uh, because they can't even run the length of themselves. We'll get a quote for, for that in a second. But also, uh, they aren't qualified. Uh, I'm talking about educationally qualified uh, to serve. So what are they saying here? Only 23% of Americans age 17 to 24, eligible to join without being granted a waiver. This is down from 29% in recent years, according to Pentagon data. Obesity and drug use are common disqualifying factors. Uh, a former senior official quoted by the, uh, in this article, uh, who maintains contact with act active duty leaders, said the poor shape of some incoming troops has led the army to stop trying to have them run within the first two weeks of basic training. So just think about that. They're not actually able to run. Uh, so next, uh, they have to teach them how to run, uh, and they've had issues with bone density to that point, uh, which uh, when they do run, uh, them, they've ended up breaking a leg or worse, a hip. I've even heard in some cases they're putting them on diets of Ensure, you know, the stuff for old people like me, in order to build that bone density. And then it goes on to say, I have a real concern of the viability of the all-volunteer force. I really do. I don't see anything changing that's going to right that ship right now albeit there are a lot of people trying to do everything they can. There are a lot of issues out there that have to be fixed, said this official. So, Brian, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it seems to me that uh, that's not a, a necessarily a US-only problem. Well, well, it isn't because UK has also got problems recruiting, but really for America, if you, if you can only take from a 20% a, a of the young people pool, you're in big trouble. This is breakdown of a nation state. So the US, for all its pontificating on the world stage, is falling apart internally uh, because people are not fit, they're not educated. Uh, look at the uh, homeless people sleeping on the streets in very wealthy American cities. This is utter breakdown. And of course, it's one of the things that, interestingly enough, Putin points to and says, look at what the West has become. It's yes. in front of our eyes. Yes. And uh, so just very briefly, uh, what was the Russians' response to the NATO conference? Well, let's have a look at a quote from uh, the Speaker of the State Duma in Russia. Uh, and he's really focusing on the United Kingdom, saying London seeks to convince Europe of the need to fight against Russia until the last Ukrainian, claiming that efforts to settle the conflict in Ukraine will only lead to growing instability in the world. Uh, the United Kingdom's habit to live at the expense of others is the reason uh, which seems uh, that which the country seems unable to break. Uh, London tries to grab any chance to assert itself. To assert itself, one day it withdraws from the European Union. The next day it seeks to build alliances uh, with Russophobic regimes in Poland, the Baltic states, and Ukraine. Well, let's just look at how Russophobic uh, Poland is at the moment, because this was uh, their response to the NATO uh, summit. Uh, this is uh, the Polish Prime Minister first. 
There's a significant increase in the presence of U.S. troops in Poland with the placement of main command of the U.S. Army's V Corps. Uh, and second, it's the invitation to Finland and Sweden to join the alliance. This is a historic decision as the Baltic Sea will in fact become a NATO internal sea. Uh, what is Russia supposed to think about that? Uh, NATO has risen to the challenge. Very briefly, David, thoughts? <laughs> seeing the Baltic, seeing that, that basically we have the ability to blockade Russia in the Baltic, which means blockade all Russian ice-free ports, because we also have the Bosphorus uh, under NATO control as well, is to say to Russia um, that we will blockade you um, whenever we choose to. Uh, this is possibly not going to generate a great deal of goodwill, and it will certainly prompt the Russians to look for other ways of breaking out to the sea or other ways to reaching mar uh, markets for their, their products, principally oil and gas. Um, none of this is uh, very encouraging because it doesn't promote um, any sort of reconciliation of the problem in Ukraine, nor does it uh, promote any reconciliation with Russia. We only seem to be beating the war drums just now, and the Russians have a point in pointing this out, um, that it's uh, extremely hostile. Um, I would like to see more positive moves coming from the Russian Duma about ending the war as well. Um, but they're certainly correct in uh, criticising the United Kingdom government for uh, pushing the war and not pushing peace. Uh, well, let's just quickly have uh, a look at one way that the Russians, uh, or at least the threat of Russians, breaking through. Uh, this is from Spiegel. Uh, and uh, well, let's just do a quick translate of the uh, headline. Brussels and Berlin want to end the transit ban to Kaliningrad. Um, so basically, Lithuania, as we've reported uh, over the last week or two, has blockaded the transit of uh, goods. Uh, the, U the EU absolutely was supporting that blockade and saying, but don't worry, it's only illegal goods that are being blockaded. And of course, who decided that the goods were illegal? Well, the EU did. Well, now they seem to be uh, running away from that idea because they're particularly concerned that actually Russia might take uh, military action, action, military action in Lithuania. So it looks like uh, they've backed down on that one or they're heading in that direction anyway. We'll see uh, and continue to report on whether that Spiegel report is correct. But then uh, finally, uh, getting back to the United States for a second, uh, I just wanted to have a quick uh, uh, smirk at this. Uh, the US hypersonic missile fails in test in fresh setback for the program. Um, so this was another failure of the, their hypersonic weapons in the test flight uh, last week. It involved a ship launched a ship launched a weapon called conventional prompt strike. Uh, well, not very prompt, it seems. Um, and uh, this is supposed to uh, arm Virginia class submarines. Uh, and Zumwalt uh, class destroyers, and of course those Zumwalt destroyers, they work very well anyway, don't well, they, Brian? Disaster. Yes, the complete disaster. Uh, an anomaly occurred following ignition of the uh, last uh, of the test assets, said the Pentagon. So there you go. But don't worry, we've got uh, other uh, exotic weapons coming along. Uh, no doubt these ones will work. Uh, U.S. Navy Air Force running capstone test of new high-powered microwave missile. Uh, and this is uh, not a, this is being described as a high-powered joint electromagnetic non-kinetic strike weapon. Um, so it's not designed to sort of land on anything and blow it up. Uh, it's supposed to uh, create some kind of electromagnetic pulse, uh, microwave pulse, which uh, knocks out uh, te technology at the other end. Uh, uh, I'm just guessing here, Mike, but I think this is an attempt by the Americans to catch up on a particular suite of weapons yes. that the Russians have 
already demonstrated they have. So the failure of, of a hypersonic weapon by the US and, and this, um, a test which says we haven't got it, we're working on it. Uh, I think it shows that the US military is in a perilous position at the moment because the Russians have demonstrated the ability of their weapons on the Ukrainian battlefield. And the Russian? Uh, sorry, the Russians the as Russian. well. The Russians, I meant. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, right, let's uh, move on then. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'd be very welcome there and your support very much appreciated. Uh, or you could pick something up uh, from the shop, uh, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. But uh, in any case, please do share any material you find on the various platforms. Uh, so, David, uh, let's move on then uh, to, uh, well, sex education in Scotland. Yes, yeah, so we start here with uh, the website rshp.scot, which stands for Relationships, Sexual Health and Parenthood. Um, I encourage anyone in Scotland or elsewhere to have a look at this website. It contains the full resources that are being used uh, for children in Scotland in this particular subject area. Uh, we have uh, an example here of um, uh, one of the uh, activities here, uh, learning for primary two, three and four. So this is six, seven, eight-year-olds. Gather the children together. We suggest an introduction along these lines. Our lesson today is about love. We'll be learning what words we use depending on who a person falls in love with. Here are some words, and then they go through gay, lesbian, bisexual, and finally, uh, heterosexual. Um, very confusing, I would suggest, for uh, five and six and seven and eight-year-olds. Um, and very much um, the sort of narrative uh, that fits the viewpoint of Stonewall, who had an influence in all of these things. Uh, not necessarily uh, the way that the parents of Scotland would want their children taught. When you dig a little deeper into this, we find um, embedded in it is a recommendation to te for teachers to use this video, which, in a, which is in a heartbeat, which you'll be able to get online if you're interested in see what it is. It's all about two boys falling in love and it's promoting two school children uh, homosexuality. Now, the, the um, background to this is it's promoting a lot more besides every form of sexual practice. There are questionnaires for teenagers which are extremely explicit. Uh, they're giving vast amounts of information which is not age appropriate to very young children. Um, and uh, they're covering things um, like uh, certain sexual practices that I won't mention on the column and pornography um, that uh, a lot of people have a lot of concerns about. And these have rather been put forward as in a, in a value-free me uh, uh, means to the school children. Uh, so this has all generated a pushback. So here we see Glasgow Live reporting. Teachers and parents in Glasgow, um, uh, sex education protest over pornographic lessons in schools. Hundreds of campaigners took to the streets in Glasgow to protest about pornographic sex education lessons and surveys. Uh, parents, teachers and pupils gathered in the city centre demanding a ban on questionnaires being distributed to senior students. They say cartoons displaying graphic sex acts being shown to young people in classrooms um, uh, were unacceptable. Steph Shaw, member of the Leave Our Kids Alone campaign, helped organise the demonstration in Robertson Street. Now, I was very happy to be at the demonstration. Here you see Steph Shaw. He's the Glasgow cabbie. He's been leading this, this particular movement and uh, he's received a lot of support. Uh, we have the next, uh, next item here. We have 
uh, a short bit of video from Richard Lucas of the Scottish Family Party uh, speaking at this uh, protest. Now just bear in mind, while Education Scotland was trying its very hardest to get me fired from my job, who are they promoting? Who are they putting in the position of authority in charge of sex education resources in Scotland? Dr. Colin Morrison. Dr. Let's Break Down the Barrier Between Childhood and Sexuality Morrison. While they were trying to get me fired, he was getting right to the top. And he still is there in that position in charge of sex education resources in Scotland. He still sits on the Scottish Education Council. That's the government's panel of experts to guide education. He wants to break down the barrier between childhood and sexuality. Okay. I wrote to the government a few months ago. I said, well, surely you don't want this person holding these views in this position. And they replied saying, it was appointed by a committee and we value all sorts of perspectives. So they basically completely ignored it. So as far as they're concerned, having a child sexuality advocate at the heart of government, at the heart of sex education, that's just fine. That's just fine by them. Is it fine with us? No! It certainly isn't. It certainly isn't. And you being here tonight is going to help deliver that message to them that it's not fine. Uh, now, amongst the other speakers, uh, Neil Fraser, a friend of the call, we've covered him, uh, him before. Uh, he spoke out, particularly emphasising the huge queues for gender reassignment surgery at the Sandiford Clinic in Glasgow, generated from the confusion that's been caused uh, to the school children. Uh, one of the main speakers was Katrina Taylor, a former headmistress of the Roman Catholic School in Edinburgh and now uh, teaching supply. And uh, she went through a great deal of uh, the teacher's concern over this programme. And we have a clip of that as well. So firstly, the state wants total destruction of the family. The family brings stability and they don't want that. The family unit has been totally destroyed by constant political attacks over decades, with the aim being to ensure that children do not look to the parents for guidance, but they will look to the state. And we see the state is taking more and more control of our lives as they have done over the last two years with their draconian mandates. Secondly, women and mothers are being sidelined. And I would suggest that the language of womanhood, motherhood, and a mother's love is language that will eventually be demonized as a form of unacceptable sexist hate speech. And thirdly, this curriculum and the materials in it are normalizing all sexual behaviors and pornography. And they have effectively reduced the age of consent to 13. At that age now, children can have sex, take contraceptives, or even have an abortion. And this can all be done without the parent's consent. It is not your right to know. You do not have to know this, and schools do not have to report this to parents. Finally, in the WHO's document, that's the World Health Organization's document, their agenda is to legalize consensual sex between adolescents. And you ask yourself, well, what is the definition of adolescence? And when you look at their definition of adolescence, it's between 10 and 19. 
And once again, it comes back to international organizations like the World Health Organization. Uh, next example, next uh, sample we've got from the speeches is Stuart Waiton of Abertay University. And as I say, you don't have to be a conservative and you don't have to be a Christian to look at some of the material that is being taught to children and to think that education authorities have lost the plot. The word I would use is unhinged. What is happening in school is unhinged. The education authorities' promotion of transgender ideology, for example, is unhinged. Adults can do what they like to their bodies, that's up to them. But children being encouraged to think about their gender obsessively at a very young age is unhelpful and incredibly disorienting. In the Scottish Government's document supporting transgender children in schools, we're informed that if a child wants to change their gender, that is not a well-being issue. But if a parent raises concerns about this, that is a well-being issue. And so the current policy is to hide this from parents. This is an incredibly important part of a child's life. And as far as the government is concerned, these educators are concerned, this should be hidden from you, the parents uh, and the grandparents. Through this new ideology, parents are represented as a danger to their own children. And that's very much the key message there. And uh, Katie Joe's face was a picture when that was being described. Uh, we also had another friend of the UK column we've, we've had on before, um, uh, Pastor O'Malley from Eastgate Church in uh, Eldersley. He was speaking, and we'll have some from him in extra time. Uh, and another uh, minister from a Glasgow church, Andrew Owen from Destiny Church, uh, spoke as well. I once heard a university lecturer say, he who controls the story controls the world. Hollywood has learned from Hollywood and is now indoctrinating our kids. I pastor a large church here in Glasgow with hundreds of families. I've never heard so many parents say they want to take their kids out of the school. Yeah. Yeah. We are a father and mother, grandparents, deeply concerned about what's happening in our city, in our time. And we are standing here saying, not on our watch. Things have got to change. This is the day when they want to silence our voice, make us think we have nothing to contribute, to make us consider that our place has no validity. But they're our kids, not their kids. And so many of them have no kids, yet they want to control our kids. They want to decide their future. But you know what? We have a cause, just like Richard was saying, that is right, that is just, and this is a moment for us to stand like never before. And this uh, silencing of uh, your voice is very key to what's happening here. Uh, the uh, the pastor's wife, uh, Sue Owen, also a senior pastor at Destiny Church, also spoke, and she brought uh, a very touching uh, mother's understanding of children uh, to the event. Uh, and we've uh, finally got here, If you, when you've read the rshp.scot website, if you have any concerns, here are the emails. Uh, Elaine McCormick, 
or Nikki Coyer at uh, Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board, NHS, or Colin Morrison, uh, as was described there. Um, if you wish to uh, share your thoughts, polite and uh, to the point as always, please do so. And if anyone's thinking it's only in Scotland, it is not. It's all over the UK. In fact, it'll be all over the Western world. Here we see uh, an advert for groomed how schools sexualise your children. That's looking at the situation predominantly in England. OK, thank you very much for that, David. Uh, now, Kitty Jo, uh, let's uh, move on to you. And uh, your first uh, topic is uh, the vaccination of uh, very young children. It is indeed, yeah. There was um, so much I wanted to cover in this segment, but for me, the fact that the CDC and the FDA have approved the COVID vaccine for children as young as six months is incredibly upsetting and something that we must warn as many people about um, as possible to save as many lives as we can. Um, number one, it doesn't make any sense to vaccinate children at all. Um, the vaccine, as we saw last week with the, the interview with Bobby Kennedy, is being used under the emergencies use authorization so and there is no emergency so there's absolutely no need for these children to be having this vaccine anyway um and the articles that are out now um are just full of fear porn um like things like um although normally covid is less severe in children the virus can be life-threatening for some kids covid is the fifth leading cause of death for children aged one to four years According to the CDC data, this is absolute lies. Um, where are the facts and the data about the deaths from the vaccines? Um, where is the VAERS report so that parents can make an informed choice? Um, the latest report from VAERS on the 17th of June 2022 is shocking, especially when you consider that according to VAERS, um, fewer than 1% of vaccine adverse reactions are actually reported. So you can see there this is a report for children from 5 to 50, 17 years and we have 121 deaths, 50,159 injuries, 3,970 hospitalised, uh, 1,335 myocarditis, 461 permanently disabled, 620 life-threatening, 1,500 severe allergic reactions, 183 thrombocytopenia, uh, 208 Bell's palsy, 25 cerebral haemorrhage, and 75 Gillian Bear paralysis. Um, there are 75 medics, scientists, and healthcare professionals that have written a letter telling the US government why the decision to, to vaccinate infants must not happen. I'm not going to read the whole letter, um, but you can pause the show and read the whole thing for yourself, or you can find it easily on daily uh, on the Daily Skeptic. I'll just read a few things. So they have um, different sections and one of them, A, extremely low risk. And the, I'd like to point out that they've mentioned that in the whole of 2020 and 2021, not a single child aged one to nine years died where COVID was the sole diagnosis. Um, B, poor vaccine efficiency. In Pfizer trials, the efficiency after two doses fell to negative values. C, potential harm of COVID-19 vaccine of children. And the one I wanted to highlight here in this section is adult sperm donors have showed a reduction in sperm counts, falling by three months post-vaccination and remaining depressed for four, at, at four to five months. And I've heard of many um, fertility, fertility clinics reporting findings that they have never seen before in sperm activity and the development of the fertilized egg. Um, D is informed consent. 
and the complete omission of information explaining to the public the difference and novel technology used in COVID-19 vaccines compared to standard vaccines and failure to inform of the lack of any long-term safety data borders on misinformation, um, which is, well, it's completely treacherous, really. Um, e is effective uh, effect on public confidence. So the poor quality of data presented by Pfizer risks bringing the pharmaceutical industry into dispute and the regulators uh, if this product is authorised. I think we can safely say that um, public confidence in the pharmaceutical industry is at a point of no return for many of us now. Um, and, but they are full steam ahead with their indoctrination and they are using once again children's best love characters to convince them and their parents into thinking it's a great idea to get the COVID vaccine and that it's the right choice. Um, and we've got a Sesame Street again. So last time it was Big Bird and this time it's Elmo. Now Daddy has super duper bandages just like Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> you were super duper today getting your COVID vaccine, Elmo. Yeah, there was a little pinch, but it was okay. Elmo was really glad to have Daddy and baby David there with him. Baby David, um, where are you? Huh? I had a lot of questions about Elmo getting the COVID vaccine. Was it safe? Was it the right decision? I talked to our pediatrician so I could make the right choice. <laughs> I learned that Elmo getting vaccinated is the best way to keep himself, our friends, neighbors, and everyone else healthy and enjoying the things they love. Oh, Daddy, oh, Elmo and baby David have a question. Oh. Can we have a hug? Oh, come here, son. <laughs> uh, Elmo loves you, Daddy. I love you, too. It's okay to have questions about COVID vaccines for your kids. Get the latest facts by speaking to your pediatrician or healthcare provider. So there you go. It's blatant propaganda. Um, this experimental drug they knew would kill people. They knew it would seriously injure people before it, before it was rolled out. Um, and now it's undeniable that the, the, uh, the, the stats are out there and it is, it is seriously harming and murdering. Um, so it's, um, it's horrendous and we've got to try and inform people of the truth. Um, and my, the last part of my segment, I'd like to talk about the, uh, the death and the passing of um, Dr. Zev Selenko. Um, I'm incredibly upset about this. Um, he passed away on Thursday last week, the 30th of June. And I first saw Zelenko being interviewed with uh, Dr. McCola and instantly loved his, um, his inspiring words and his amazing strength um, that he had when he was talking about the, uh, the evil we're up against. Um, so Dr. Zelenko, right at the beginning of this pandemic, found the prescription of three types of medicine, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin and zinc sulfate, to be an effective cure. In fact, he said it was 100% effective. And um, right at the beginning of this, he, he, told, he informed um, Trump, and Trump said, called the treatment uh, a game changer and uh, probably the most effective uh, treatment on the, uh, uh, that we have in the history of medicine. It was going to be a massive, massive discovery. And the study in New England Journal of Medicine apparently found no benefit from the treatment and those results and others led to the FDA to revoke its emergency authorization of this treatment um, on the 15th of June 2020. Um, I did find a video that unfortunately we can't actually play. Um, I found it on Telegram 
and it explains how they purposefully use um, cancer cells to prove that hydroxychloroquine was ineffective against COVID-19. Um, but what they didn't um, realize that in fact, they actually ended up proving that it was more efficient than they thought. Um, it actually pr uh, protects healthy cells whilst attacking cancerous cells. Um, so that obviously is more life-saving discovery that is being kept from us. Um, but Dr. Zelenko didn't give up, despite being incredibly unwell himself. Um, he founded a company called Zelenko Labs to promote other um, non-conventional treatments um, in, for illness, uh, the likes of um, vitamins and uh, quercetin. Um, he was unfortunately diagnosed with a rare form of cancer um, in 2018 and had to have his right, right, right lung removed. Um, but he still carried on and founded another organization, a non-for-profit organization called the Zelenko Freedom Foundation, um, because he said he wanted to leave a legacy uh, before he, he passed away. Um, the purpose of the Zelenko Freedom Foundation is to find the next brave generation of medical professionals committed to keeping their patients safe without doing the bidding of, our, of Big Pharma. Over the coming weeks, we will further define the vision of our organization, which is dedicated to the principles and advocacy of Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. He saved many lives and will continue to. Um, and he was a shining light in these really dark times. And my heart goes out to his family and his friends at this extremely sad time. And I'll finish the segment with a, a video from him. I started the Zelenko Freedom Foundation because I'm dying, it seems. I've been here before, so I can't say for sure. God has played ping pong with my soul, but at this point, my health situation has seriously changed. Basically need a wheelchair to move around and um, need help taking a shower, preparing food, going to the bathroom. So as I look at this stage of my life, and my body is failing me, legacy becomes um, essential. I think life is much bigger than any one individual. And if we could set up systems in place that can propagate uh, principles of truth, of love, of courage, to do what's right, not what's easy. I think um, that's a worthy use of someone's last energies. I want the epitome of truthful uh, messaging, journalism, um, through various platforms, whether it's social media, regular media, print media, irrelevant, word of mouth, what I, in, in houses of worship, I want the truth like a mantra propagated. I'm presenting to you a different perspective than what you've been told. Okay, thank you very much for that, Kitty Joe. Um, just to, to finish this little segment, uh, I just want to put this article up once again uh, from Ian Davis on the UK Cullen website. It was published in June 2020. 
the headlines, the hydroxychloroquine scandal. Uh, and uh, this highlights the clinical trial that was run on uh, hydroxychloroquine in the UK uh, and how that was uh, absolutely designed to uh, demonize this particular product uh, and resulted in many deaths. Um, and it's very difficult to uh, it's very difficult to see how those deaths could have been anything other than intentional because the doses that were given were well above uh, what was internationally recognized as uh, the point of overdose. Uh, but David, uh, let's just come quickly back onto uh, the issue of Scotland and sex education. And we've got the Scottish Daily Express here with the headline uh, concerns over a doctor appointed by SNP government to produce sex education resources. Yes, this relates to uh, Dr. Colin Morrison, um, and he's uh, been included in the Scottish Education Council and is heavily involved with producing the RSHP.Scot sex education resources. We'll look to earlier. Uh, critics have uh, pointed to a thesis he wrote in uh, 2011, where he appears to outline the need to break down the artificial barrier between childhood and sexuality. Um, this was questioned. Richard Lucas, who you saw speaking earlier at the Scottish Family Party, has uh, written several times, actually, to Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville to ask whether it's appropriate for Dr Morrison to continue in the role. Uh, Shirley Ann Somerville, you see her there, uh, MSP for Dunfermline, uh, declined to answer, but eventually, at the fourth time of asking, a Scottish Government spokesman wrote back and said, Members of the Scottish Education Council have a common purpose of improving education. Members are selected because of the knowledge and experience. Brian, any comments? Well, that says it all. Yeah, a common purpose. And of course, uh, we've been warning uh, about what the common purpose is over a great many years. And that common purpose is certainly not beneficial to society, families or children. Uh, now, we have here... Um, I access to the thesis. Um, so that the um, the link on the page there will allow people to go and check that out for themselves. Uh, he confirms in this in the preface that uh, he was involved in uh, feminist thought and new sexual and identity politics. And this uh, engaged him and uh, developed his ideas. This is now what's running Scottish uh, sex ed. Um, a few quotes from the, uh, from the thesis. It would seem that keeping childhood and sexuality apart has done little to help us help us explore what children and young people need uh, to ensure a healthy and happy adult sexuality because such a position fails to explore what sexuality means and why it matters in childhood. Um, and he's talking that childhood is just basically a social construct. Childhood is understood, constructed, to be something separate from the realm of ad adulthood and only in adulthood that sexuality can be understood and expressed. In this construction of childhood, we have problematized sexuality per se. So he's going after the very concept of childhood. Um, and uh, uh, the second quote here uh, refers to the historical perspective taken as affirmed the usefulness of an approach which disassociates our understanding of sexuality and the need for positive sexual health from a morality based on fear and ignorance to one based on dignity and social justice. So that morality based on fear and ignorance, that would be how we've all run our society for, well, ever up until about 1965. That's to be cast aside. No traditional values are to be allowed. Now, uh, in this uh, thesis, he uh, quotes uh, uh, Michael Foucault, quite a lot. 
an example, Foucault's work is also valuable in terms of his observations about power in social relationships and its relationship with pleasure. Um, that's one of 58 references to Michael Foucault in that thesis. Uh, David, right? can I just correct you there? It, it is Michelle. I don't want the name Michael to be uh, associated with this particular individual, if you don't mind. Oh, okay, Michelle, I, right, Michelle Foucault, you're quite right. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, so from the Wikipedia page, Foucault argued that children could give sexual consent in 1977 uh, with other intellectuals. He signed a petition to the French Parliament called for the decriminalisation of all consensual sexual relationships between adults and minors. Could it get any worse? Well, I'm afraid, yes, it can. Here we have Al Jazeera reporting on a reckoning with Foucault's alleged sexual abuse of boys in Tunisia, the detail of which is pretty shocking. In an interview with French public TV channel 5 France, on March the 5th, Sormann confirmed while visiting Foucault, he witnessed what Foucault did to young children in Tunisia ignoble things. The possibility of consent uh, could not be sought. These things were of extreme moral ugliness and it included uh, rape in a graveyard. So this is what's energising. This is where the ideas come from underpinning um, the uh, Scottish education policy here. Now the organisation TASC Scotland Limited who actually run and has generated uh, this resource it's run by a Catherine James McCulloch and by Colin Morrison. Catherine Jane McCulloch is also part of the Scottish Alliance for Children's Rights and she's a long-term um, leader of the Children's Parliament. A quick look at that and all we have here, both in very cute children photographs and as adults, Catherine McCulloch and Colin Morrison are co-directors of the Children's Parliament. So we see this network. Um, of people who are sharing ideas. And if we look at, uh, at Catherine, uh, uh, Catherine McCulloch's uh, talk here, Scotland 2030, interesting date, growing up in future Scotland, she says, without a human rights approach, adults retain all the power and children are dependent on adults to create the culture, ethos and values of kindness, trust, empathy and human dignity. Where do you think she got the, th the idea that adult-children relationships were all about power. Well, that's exactly what Michel Foucault was talked about. His entire thesis was everything is about power. There's no truth, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's only power. Um, that's where her ideas come from. And I've no knowledge whether she actually knows this, quite possibly she doesn't. But that's the source of the ideas running and driving the Scottish education policy regarding sexual health, sexual education for children. Yes, okay, thank you for that, David. And then finally, uh, back to you, Kitty Joe. Uh, and uh, well, we're back to the issue of drag. We are, we are. As we thought, um, the grooming of our children isn't going away anytime soon, and we've got to keep applying the pressure. And the latest I'm hearing it's to, to normalise this is that drag queens are no different to pantomime dames. What's the difference? Well, in my opinion, there is a big difference. Um, let's look at the pantomime dame to start with. Um, the men that play dames in panto are actors and don't earn their living out of being uh, drag queens. Uh, many are straight and many are comedians. Uh, the pantomime goes back to the 1500s. It came from a traditional Italian theatre form that involved comedy, uh, clowning and audience uh, participation. Uh, the dame is the comedy character. 
It takes the mickey out of the stereotypical older woman, the downtrodden housewife. The costumes are far from sexy. Um, and then you compare that to a drag queen. So what words come to your mind when you think of a drag queen? For me, sex, drugs, nightclubs, strip joints. Um, so I just, I had to bring it up because I'm hearing this and I, and I just don't understand it. I, I can't understand how people can okay the push of drag queens in our schools and our libraries and in our children's lives with taking them to the pantomime. But let's have a look at some headlines involving some drag queens. So the first article is from 2013, actually. It's the only one that's, uh, that's fairly old. The rest are, are recent, but I just wanted to look at it because paedophile drag queen arranged to meet father to have sex with his children, eight and 11, but was caught by police who set up a sting operation. Um, he, was, uh, he was going to meet this guy. He had um, glow-in-the-dark condoms, Easter eggs, toys on him. Um, and he was jailed for 26 months, so he's obviously out now and hopefully not touring these uh, libraries in our country. Um, but he, uh, he made a joke about being a sex offender at a Brighton Pride Festival. Um, I'm sweating like a paedophile in mother care, he told the crowd. Um, and then in the next article, we have an incident where a group of alleged Proud Boys crashed a drag queen story hour taking place at a public library in San Lorenzo to call out the sickening display. So the Red Voice Media previously reported on the incident that took place on the 11th of June at the San Lorenzo Library, where a drag queen who uses the moniker Panda Dulce was hosting the drag queen story hour that he was interrupted by a group of men allegedly aligned with the Proud Boys. Video footage from the, um, the men who arrived there at the library uh, to speak out against this um, character shows footage of Panda Dulce, um, he shows the library that, that he, he's um, rapping about children performing oral sex on him, and yet nobody in the library took any notice. They were unfazed and um, telling the, the men that this drag queen wasn't doing anything wrong um, being around the kids in the library. So um, that was totally uh, mental. And the last, uh, last month, we had another drag queen uh, that was arrested and charged with 20, 25 counts of felony of possession of child sexual abuse material. And the next slide, a UK drag queen was busted as a paedophile in an undercover ring uh, sting. Uh, and it's, it's just this, these headlines are coming out more and more. Um, but don't worry, it's okay. It's perfectly safe to have uh, drag queens um, touring our children's libraries. And we have our very own starting this month. Uh, drag Queen Story Hour starts in Reading on the 25th of July and finishes in Guernsey on the 1st of September. And every ticket is free. Um, but there are lots of people on this. There are lots of people that I'm aware of that are really deeply disturbed and trying their very best to, um, to put a stop to it. Armchair War uh, Warfare, a telegram group, Denny Truth Pills, Michael Manuel Chaves, are all sending letters to libraries and you can find copies of those on their channels. Libraries, the police and the NSPCC and are asking people to do the same. Um, someone wrote to the Oxford, Oxfordshire County Council asking some questions about the show too. And as you can see, um, it's council funded and the artist, drag queen, is being paid £450 for the hour's work of reading stories uh, to our children. Um, the question, did the council invite Aida uh, to these talks or did Aida request to come to the Oxfordshire libraries 
And the answer is the library service was notified of the national tour, 100 libraries in 100 days by the artist and was invited to participate. Um, I know that Hope, the Alphas, Louise May Crayfield and many, many more people are putting their heads together to come up with an idea of how we can put a stop to this tour um, and shine a light on what to what many people are thinking is okay now. Um, and to finish this segment, I've got a couple of really shocking videos as well. Uh, one of pride and one of a, a child. Um, oh, there it is. So this is a young child, looks about five, six. Um, and as you can see, is surrounded by adults and performing um, like a drag queen, um, which is, I, I don't call that entertainment. And then we have another video from Pride where this little boy, his little face, such an innocent little thing. And he's basically looking at this woman twerking um, with hardly anything on. And nobody's paying any notice of him. He's literally just stood there by himself. I, I, I'm lost for words, if I'm honest. Yes. Okay, thank you for that, Katie Jo. Um, I, my comment really on this the segment is that uh, one of the speakers david that you were shown was talking about effectively authorities having lost the plot uh, somebody in our chat box has said how does something like this get so far and i think the answer is that of course nobody's lost the plot this is the plot this is calculated public policy and it's being brought in via uh, the public authorities, by city councils, by the government itself, through networks of people who have been put in place in order to push this type of agenda forward. So, Katie Joe, I think the key answer is that people have got to lift every stone to expose what's happening and to identify the individuals that are promoting this horrific abuse of our children. So it's something that everybody can do. And certainly that tour of libraries is something that each and every one of us can do something in order to say, no, this shouldn't be happening. Uh, David, let's just very quickly end on a final slide. Yes, we, it is, of course, uh, the 4th of July and we have many, many viewers in the United States of America. And if you're watching from the States, we wish to remind you that you're very beautiful and we love you madly. And we thought we'd give you a little message on the 4th of July from Britain, in fact, from George III. And the message reads, how's your tax rate now, ungrateful colonials? Thank you for that. That, uh, that is a great way to end the programme. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we're, we're out of time, so we must end there. David and Kenny Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll say to all of our viewers and listeners, please share the information that we've given you today. That's why we're putting it out there. Warn other people. And I'd particularly like to ask for anybody out there who can help me with the research of uh, Presidium, because uh, I think there's something really terrible now being done to uh, the people in Ukraine, aside from the war, the West has got something really uh, very bad planned for this future rebuild. We'll leave it there. We will be doing a, an extra time. Yes. So we'll see our members in a few moments. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Bye. -bye.